Good morning. My name is Pastor John, the associate pastor here at East Shore. I'm so glad that you've joined us on this Sunday morning. We're going to start kind of a new little mini sermon series this week where I'm just going to consider some questions that I have been thinking about and really around now what? What do we do now? I was just realizing this week that coming up in a few days, it will be about five months that, at least in our area and this part of the country, we've had to deal with this coronavirus pandemic that's been going on. And in five months' time, the world looks very different. Routines that were once simple are now much more complicated. Going to a restaurant or getting groceries is a whole task in and of itself. To deal with things like one-way aisles, and I don't know about you, but I can't tell you how many times I've almost left home without my mask and had to run back inside. And then there's the other complications. We now have to ponder the, the moral implications of every time somebody asks us to go somewhere or do something. Is this right to do? I'm going to be with this person later. Is this right to do? How many people are going to be there? Life is just much more complicated. And the same is true within the church. Things look different now. Going to church takes more effort. It looks different in the sanctuary. Seats are spread out. There's less people. The way we do things, the way the service goes is different. It's uncomfortable. Even if we're someone who's watching from home, we still have to get everything together, control our kids or our family to sit down in a different place and watch the service. And what's really happened is our church, like so many others, has been scattered. Some are here, some are there. The church is scattered. And that's kind of upsetting. It's, we don't like it. We don't like how things are. But it has been five months, and it's time for us to think about what happens next. Time for us to think about now what And although there has never been anything in human history, at least on this scale, all happening at the same time everywhere in the world that everyone's aware of, there are events that have been similar in history. And there's even some events that the early church went through that I found some, or there seemed to me to be some remarkable similarities with what we're going through now. And I think we can learn from their example. We can see what God is doing And we can learn what we should be doing in this time by looking at those who came before us in the faith. So before we turn to God's word, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this time we have this morning to look at your word, to see that even though the church is scattered, you have answers to now what? You have answers for what we can do next, what we can pursue, what you want us to do. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness to your people at all times, but especially now. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness to us, your great grace that you show us through the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that he may be the one that is glorified in this time. As we learn what we're supposed to be doing, may we direct our praise, our glory, our affection towards him so that he may increase and everything else decreases. Lord, again, thank you for this time we have this morning to look at your word, to see your truth, and to praise your son. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. So we're going to be in the book of Acts, if you want to go there in your Bible app or your Bible in front of you, chapter 11. But before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about what's happening in the book of Acts before this. The book of Acts is the story of the early church and God's work through them. And when we get to chapter 11, where we will be, we're going to read about the church scattered. If you're using the outline, either that you've downloaded online or that you picked up in the lobby, the first point is the church scattered. And we'll see that in chapter 11. But before we get there, 
the history of the church is really focused on one particular church in one particular place. The very first New Testament church was in the city of Jerusalem, the main capital city of Israel. And when the church starts there, God is working in the church that in ways that everyone can see, wow, this is good, this is positive. God is doing good things for the church. For example, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes on the believers there. And when it does, Peter, the one apostle of the Lord, he speaks to the crowd. And this is what happens. The very first top of this slide says, those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people joined the church that day. A little bit later, the other apostles are sharing, and shortly after that, chapter 4, many of those who heard the word believed. The number of men came to about 5,000. From 3,000 people to 5,000 men or 5,000 plus people are now a part of this church. That's like a mega church by our standards. The church is united. People are passionate about being together, about sharing with one another what God has given them. Again, over 5,000 people are gathered together. And it keeps going. It keeps being good. In chapter 6, we read this. The word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. They stopped counting. There were so many people coming. A great many of priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now, in our 21st century mind, we have questions. How big did it get? How did it work? Were they all together at one time? Did they break up into little home groups? Uh, The scripture doesn't answer those questions for us. There's an implication that at least occasionally they all gather together. It talks about they met together in a part of the temple. So at least occasionally all of them seem to be together. But then something happened. And that something was a man named Stephen, who was a servant in the church. He is arrested, he is tried, and then he is executed by stoning. And after that happens, a wave of persecution, of attacks against the church happens. And immediately after that, we read this in Acts 1.8. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So all these people together, thousands, this persecution comes, and then many of them leave. They get out of the city. Now, after this, the main persecutor, the one who was mainly driving this, a man named Saul, and we may know him as the apostle Paul, he comes to faith in the Lord as well. And so the persecution slows down. But the damage has been done. Everyone has spread out, has left Jerusalem. After this time, the Apostle Peter leads the very first Gentile, non-Jewish man and his family to Christ. And that's the story that ends at the beginning of chapter 11, which then brings us to our verse for this section. Acts chapter 11, verse 19 says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So this persecution has happened and many people are leaving. Some go to places close to Jerusalem, like places like Samaria or on the coast to cities like Caesarea. Some go up to what's modern day Syria and to Damascus or cities on the coast like Lydda, Joppa, Sharon. But some go further like these people. Some go really far north to uh, Phoenicia, which is modern day Lebanon, very close to Beirut where that unfortunate explosion was this week. 
Some go to the island of Cyprus. Some go even further north to the bottom of what's modern-day Turkey to a city called Antioch. And this city was a huge city in the ancient world. It was the third biggest city in the Roman Empire, the land that Rome controlled. The only cities bigger were Rome itself and Alexandria in Egypt. And it was a natural place for them to go. While they were followers of Jesus, they were also Jews, and there was a large Jewish community in Antioch. So it makes sense to go there. But it's also a city that was known for its sexual immorality, even by Roman standards. The point in all of this is that Christians have spread out. They've left Jerusalem, and they've spread out for hundreds of miles. And the Protestant reformer John Calvin talks about what's happening here in some great words. He says, this devastation, this persecution overflowed in righteousness. And he points out, if so many godly men and godly women had not been expelled out of Jerusalem, well, then Cyprus would have heard nothing of the gospel. Phoenicia would have heard nothing of Christ. Italy, Spain, which were farther off, would have heard nothing. But the Lord brought it to pass that of many torn members did arise more bodies. What he's saying is that the suffering of some people, the persecution they experienced, forced people to run, to flee, which led to many more people in those cities coming to have faith in Christ. And that's wonderful, but it still must have been very difficult in the moment. Remember that early Jerusalem church, there was 5,000 plus people, and sometimes they all gathered together, crowd of thousands of believers all together, worshiping the Lord, fellowshipping together, knowing one another in a church. But the church was probably, there was probably no one church that was that size again for maybe hundreds of years after that. And imagine that you went to, you remember a part of that first church in Jerusalem. So to you, church looks like thousands of people all together praising God. But then in one day, everything changes. People leave. They leave the city of Jerusalem. They never come back again. And church is so much smaller. It's smaller groups now in homes. It would have looked completely different. And if you were living in that moment, that would have looked very discouraging to you. You would have thought, this isn't what church was supposed to be. We were supposed to be all these crowds of people together. And now we're in these smaller groups and everything's different now. It would have looked like something bad was happening, that God had rejected your church. It would have been sad and discouraging. I imagine the apostles felt that. Peter, James, John, and them, there were all these people here, and now they're all gone. It's just us in this city. So many people left Jerusalem, and they never came back, including the people we're talking about now. This one group heads north, and they decide to make the best they can of this terrible situation. And so they get to these cities like Antioch or others, and they began with what they knew. They spoke, they shared, they preached with their fellow Jews. The people who were like them, they told them about Jesus, how he was the Messiah and the Savior they'd longed for. They didn't know what just happened to Peter, how some Gentiles were coming to faith. So this is what they knew, but they're forgetting what Jesus had said. Because Jesus said in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples, not just of Jews, but of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Make disciples of all nations. But this is a lesson they would soon learn. Now with this picture that I think the scripture's painting here, do you see some similarities to what's going on now. Everything changed for the early church in an instant, and it looked like it changed for the worse. 
Everything they were used to, everything they thought church was about was gone. Now, there's some strong differences. We are not being persecuted to death like, like they are. That was a much worse situation. I, I'm not equating them like that. But still, church life has changed dramatically. It doesn't feel the same. Everything feels different, and it feels worse. It doesn't feel as good as it was before. And for some people, your personality may mean that you feel this harder than others. Because some people really struggle with changes. And I'll be the first to admit, I am one of those people. I love routines. I love doing the same thing over and over and over again. I have a routine when I wake up. I have a routine when I go to bed. And if something's thrown off in there, that could throw off the entire day. My wife and my parents could attest to you that for breakfast and lunch, almost every day of my life, I've had the same thing. I've had a bowl of cinnamon life cereal for breakfast, and for lunch, I've had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Now, the things will happen if I'm traveling, I'll eat something else. If somebody asks me to go to breakfast or lunch with them, I'll eat something else. But if I'm by myself, I am having that bowl of cereal, or I'm having that peanut butter and jelly for lunch. This even goes if I'm going to a restaurant. If I go to a restaurant, there's typically one meal that's my favorite. And I don't care what happens. If I'm going to the restaurant, I'm having that one meal. Even if you say, Pastor John, I will buy you a different meal at this restaurant. I will say, no, I will spend my own money to buy this meal that I like. The point is that I like routines. So I don't like what's happening, what we've had to do in the church. I don't like the changes that we've had to make. I wish everything was back to the way it used to be. But that is not where we are right now. And I don't know what's going to happen, but I I really think that things are going to be different for a while. It's most likely going to be a while before things are back to how they used to be. And it's okay to miss the way things used to be. I miss it. It makes me sad. It's sad that we're not all gathered together as as a large church body. It makes me sad that we weren't able to go on our mission trip to the Czech Republic, that we have to make major changes to things like children's ministry, VBS. I'm sad about those things. I miss them. But just because I'm sad and upset about that doesn't mean that God is finished with us or that he's finished with the work that he's doing. Because in the rest of this passage, we see the hand of of the Lord, the hand of the Lord. Let's read verses 20 through 26. Verse 20 talks about these people. They're in Antioch, and it says, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists, to the Greeks, to the Gentiles also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church of Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So what we have here is some of these people who've come to Antioch, particularly people from the island of Cyprus and Cyrene, that's like modern-day Libya, 
These are Jews who were born outside Israel. They grew up speaking the Greek language. And so they come to this city where everyone speaks Greek and they start sharing the gospel with their Greek-speaking Gentile neighbors, the Hellenist. These were the kind of people they grew up with. It was normal for them to interact with them. They had not heard what happened to Peter, how Gentiles were coming to faith. They just simply started sharing what was special in their life with their neighbors. Said, hey, we know about this faith in Jesus. We want to share it with you too. One scholar, F.F. Bruce, calls this a momentous step forward because a relationship with God is now not just exclusively a Jewish thing. Instead, they were practicing what all the Christians were doing. Acts 8, 4 says, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And that's what they did. Instead of, though, talking to Jews like them, they said, hey, you over there, Gentile, you should hear about this guy, Jesus, too. And what's really amazing to me about this is in this verse 20 and 21, there's no big name that we recognize. This isn't Peter. This isn't James, John, or Paul who's doing this. This is a nameless group of faithful disciples who began this ministry. We don't know their names, but in their faith, it just their faith, the beliefs overflowed. They had to talk to their friends, their relatives, their acquaintances and neighbors in this new city. They shared that Jesus is Lord. He is their master. And it's probably a good reason they're doing this. In the Greek world, the idea of a Lord, a master, was more common than the Hebrew idea of a Messiah and a Savior. So by sharing him as Lord, that was something that their neighbors could relate to. But many of these Greeks were looking for someone to save them. They were looking for some way to access immortality. And they said, hey, the person you're looking for is this Jewish man named Jesus. Jesus was their answer. And as they shared, verse 21 says, the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number of people came to the faith. This was the first time that Gentiles on this size, on this scale, were coming to know God. And it was because of God's hand, his power, and his strength was with them. That phrase, the hand of the Lord, is used throughout the Bible. It's sometimes talked about judgment, God bringing his hand down on someone. But it's also used to talk about blessing. And it's a reminder to us that all of our efforts in the church or anything we try to do for God is useless if we do not have God's hand with us. Here's two Old Testament examples. In the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah asked his king for something, and the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And that's really interesting because the king was the one who answered him. He said, king, would you give me this? And the king did, and Nehemiah says, that's because God was with me that he did that. There's a prayer in Psalm 80 to God saying, let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Because if God's hand is on us, then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life. We will call upon your name. The only way we can say faithful to God is if his hand is with us. It's a reminder to us that it is God's power, not our human skill, that saves people and that builds the church. God's the one who prepares the way. He is the one who prepares people's hearts. He is the one who saves. The success of a church, the success of the gospel, the success of people coming to know Christ is not up to us. The Apostle Paul knew this. He says in 1 Corinthians 3 that I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. 
So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now, don't mishear me. If we're Christians, we should work to share the gospel with others. We should look for ways to share about Jesus. We shouldn't just sit back and wait for God to do something. But at the same time, any growth or any life change that happens in someone ultimately comes from the Lord. I don't save anyone. You don't save anyone. God saves. I don't make someone more like Jesus. God makes someone more like Jesus. And this action is how God was working during this time of persecution. God uses everything, even persecution, even a scattering of the church to grow his true body of believers. As Pastor Charles Spurgeon said, the malice of Satan was made the instrument of the mercy of God. Satan's malice is attacks against the church. God said, okay, attacking the church. Well, I'll just send the church out here. And where the church went, people came to know Christ. And we know people were having a genuine relationship with Jesus because the way it's described in verse 21 is a great number who believed turned to the Lord. They turned. That's a great description of salvation, a wonderful word there. Because to come to know Christ involves a turning. We have to turn away from our sin toward faith and trust in Jesus Christ. In fact, salvation must involve a turning. Salvation is not, oh, I believe Jesus existed and he died on a cross. No, salvation is I'm turning away from sin and putting all my trust and faith in Jesus. I've turned away from the old. I am embracing something new. And when that happens, it has a result in our life. To truly believe in Jesus means that our life will change. And the church knew this. So the church in Jerusalem wants to see, okay, these people say they know Jesus. Let's send someone up there to see if they actually have a relationship with him, if these Gentiles are living differently than they did before. And so they send a man named Barnabas, who was a great encourager up there. They wanted to send him to make sure the church was faithfully preaching the good news. They wanted him to validate the ministry. And this was a standard practice for the church. If a new church started, they sent someone from Jerusalem to see if they were following Scripture the way it should be. And when Barnabas gets there, verse 23 says that when he came, he saw the grace of God. He saw evidence of God's grace and blessing. He could say to Jerusalem, yes, God is at work in this church in Antioch. And so he endorsed this new ministry with joy and gladness. He rejoiced in it. And the result at the end of verse 24 is that a great many people were added to the faith. Many people were coming to faith. God was adding them. They were being brought to know Jesus Christ. In fact, the church was growing so rapidly, Barnabas said, I'll stay and help. And there were still too many. He said, let me go get somebody I know, this man named Saul, who we know as Paul, and he can help me. He gets Paul because Paul knew Greek and brings him to this church so they could reach Gentiles and teach people to know God. And they taught in this church for over a year. These were people who did not know anything about the God of the Bible, so they had to start at the beginning and teach them about Jesus, about God, about God's Word. Again, a reminder that the urgent need for new believers is that they be taught God's Word. And it's something we always need. We always need to grow in knowing what Scripture says. But there's one more detail in this passage that we read. That's interesting. The very end of verse 26 says, in this church in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. 
The very name of our faith had its origin in this humble church. Not in Jerusalem. Jerusalem with Peter, James, and John. No, no, in Antioch, where, yes, Paul and Barnabas were helping, but the church was started by this nameless group of believers. In this place, we were first called Christians. The identity of the faith was developing apart from Judaism. And this word Christians, though, it's interesting in Scripture. We say it proudly. We put on surveys, I am a Christian. Well, we checked the little box for that. But in Scripture, it's only people who are outside of the faith who use that word. It's a name only used by outsiders. How it came about is probably something like F.F. F. Bruce paints a little picture of it in a little quote here. He says that imagines a conversation. Someone says, who are these people? One Antiochene would ask another as two or three unofficial missionaries gathered hearers around them in one of the city colonnades. And his friend says, oh, These are the people who are always talking about this Messiah, this Christos. They're the Christ people, you know, the Christians. That's who those people are. We see this word again, so we see it here. It also, a pagan king says it later in Acts. And the only other time we see it is in 1 Peter 4, 16, where Peter says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. Now, we sometimes read it, oh, somebody's a Christian and they're suffering, but the implication there is that someone's using it as an insult. If someone says, ha ha, you stink, you're a Christian, if they're using that name as an insult, Peter says, well, then own it. Don't be ashamed. Use that name to glorify God. And because of teachings like this, the name eventually became a badge of honor. About a hundred years after the events we're looking at, there was another persecution of Christians. And one man who was persecuted, he was being tortured and eventually died, was a man named Sanctus. And as he was being tortured, they were asking him questions. And his only response to every question was, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. And that is such a great name for our faith. Because our faith is centered on, it depends on Jesus Christ. And that's what this church was about. They were called Christians because they kept talking about Jesus. They kept talking about the Christ. And God used this church to send out the first missionaries. You could read about that in Acts chapter 13. Maybe he did that because these were mostly Gentiles, non-Jews in this church, and they wanted other Gentiles to come to faith in Jesus. So that's what's happening here. But we may read all that and go, okay, that's great. That's wonderful that that was happening to that church. But so what? What does that have to do with us? Well, think about the progression of events here. If there was not a persecution in Jerusalem, then the believers would not have been scattered. If the believers would not have been scattered, then they wouldn't have ended up in Antioch. If they wouldn't have ended up in Antioch, then great numbers of Gentiles would not have come to faith. And if great numbers of Gentiles would not have come to faith, they wouldn't have sent out missionaries. If they don't send out missionaries, less people know Jesus. And if less people know Jesus, that means you and me do not know who Jesus is. So because of that persecution started back then, that scattering of believers that happens, it led to so many people coming to know the Lord. It shows us that even when the church is scattered, even when it looks different, even when things look bad and discouraging, God is still at work, even if we can't see it. You know what? I can give you a 100% guarantee about what's happening right now. 
100% guarantee God will use this time for his glory and his purposes. Maybe we'll get to see it in our lifetime. Maybe we won't, but God still will use this season to grow his church because God's hand is ever involved in his creation. We can trust that he will turn people toward faith in him. So what is God doing now? Well, I can't tell you for sure, but I'm really excited to find out how he's going to use it. Our God's great hand is at work. But what about us? What should we do? Or as the title said, and as the third point in your outline says, now what? what? What do we do now? Well, I think we can learn something from what the son of encouragement, Barnabas, encouraged this new church to do. This bridge builder, this mediator, he says this in verse 23. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. We are to remain faithful and true with a steadfast, resolute purpose and determination. It's telling us we need to continue after God with all of our hearts, with everything that we are. It's a challenge that even in the midst of a difficult time to persevere to the end. This is a very common New Testament advice. In just two chapters from now in Acts 13, Paul, Barnabas, they're traveling, they're sharing God's word. And after they're in one town, the meeting of the synagogue breaks up. There's many Jews, devout converts to Judaism. They follow Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The same idea, continue faithfully seeking after the Lord. Or you can look at the book of 1 John. The apostle John says it this way. He uses different words, but the same concept. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, remain in you, continue in it. Because if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, continues in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. The challenge for us is to continue faithfully. It's very easy to say that you believe something, to say your life is about something, but our profession of faith means nothing if we do not persevere to the end. The only way that we can know 100% for sure that someone has a genuine relationship with Christ, the only way to prove it is that they persevere in the faith. And so for us, we are to continue knowing God, to continue serving him with faithfulness. This is our calling. This is our purpose. Okay, so real practical, what does that look like for us? Well, let's think about where we are right now. Right now, we're in a place where our local church here does look scattered. Some of you are here this morning, and some of you have been faithfully coming, and I'm so thankful for that. Thank you for coming and worshiping the Lord. Some of you have been so faithful to join us online or somewhere else, and thank you so much for faithfully tuning in and faithfully fellowshipping with your church body online. I'm very grateful for those who are here and those who are watching, and we must maintain our unity even in this scattered state. I talked about it a few weeks ago. I think it's unhelpful to criticize people, whether criticize someone, oh, you're just afraid to come, or someone at home criticize people saying you're reckless going to a church. That, that's unhelpful. We are one body in Christ together. But what I think we should do is think about where we are in this situation and in the world. And there were two principles that I feel we need to accept. Now, these aren't in your notes. These are just two things that I've observed that I think are principles 
that I'm living by, operating by, two observations that I have. So they're not your notes, one or two. I'll get to them in a second. But they're kind of the principles of where we are. And the first is church is going to be different. Church is going to be different for a while. And what I mean by that is not what the church is. The church has always been the body, the collection of God's redeemed people. That has not changed what the church is. But how we do church, what it looks like, is going to be different for a while. It's foolish for us to try to do everything exactly like we used to do it before, right now, in this moment. I'm not saying we never do those things again, but I'm saying right now it's going to be different. We're going to have to do things differently, try things new, make mistakes, get messy. I'm thinking of, that's the magic school bus thing. <laughs> I don't know why that came in my mind. I don't know what all that entails about how it's going to work out in the church. I don't have all the answers there, but we're going to have to try together to see what will church look like in this season. And remember, I talked a few minutes ago, I love routines. I love doing things the same way over and over again. Thinking that things are going to be different, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't like that. I don't want to do things that way, but that's where we are right now. And God never promised me comfort or promised me that I would get to do things all the way I liked it in my life. So church is going to be different for a while. But the other side of that is that life doesn't stop. Yes, church is going to be different, but life doesn't stop. We can't hit the pause button on our life until things are normal again. We can't sit back and wait for all of this to just blow over. And there's Several ways you could be thinking about this. Maybe you're one who thinks, well, this is all political. It will all be gone after the election. I, I don't know if that's true. That would be wonderful if it's true, if on November 4th, this is all gone and everybody starts living normal again. But even if that's true, November is over almost three months away. We cannot sit for three months and just wait for that. And if it's more likely that it's going to be longer than that, then we need to be doing something now. Or maybe you're someone either here or watching at home and you're thinking, well, it's just too dangerous to be doing things now. I need to take care of me and my family. When it's safe, we can go out again and we can do things. Now, I'm not telling you to do anything that you feel is unsafe, but life doesn't stop. We need to grow as people, as disciples. We need to pursue knowing God through his word, through prayer, spiritual disciplines, we need to act and live for him. We can't wait and let our life pass us by. Think of it in terms of a plant. If you have a plant you're trying to grow, trying to develop, if you put it in a closet and say, well, it's dangerous out in the world, so I'm going to put it in this closet, your plant is going to die. You either have to put it outside where it can get water and sun, or if you keep it inside, that's fine, but give it light, give it water, help it to grow. It will not grow on its own. So what should we do? Well, there's two action steps modeling this church in Antioch that we can take at this time. The first one is to connect. First action step in this time is to connect. And there's a couple ways I'd like to think about this. First, ask yourself, are you connected to Christ? Are you connected to Christ? Do you know Jesus? Do you have a personal relationship with him? Have you done what this said? Verse 21 says, The hand of the Lord was with them. A great number who believed turned to the Lord. Have you turned toward Jesus? Have you turned away from your sin toward faith and trust in Him? Jesus was the one who came to earth for us. He lived a perfect life. He then died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin, our rebellion against God. 
And then he rose from the grave so that we could have eternal life with him. To have that eternal life, we turn from our sin toward faith in him. He has enabled us to have a relationship with God. Have we turned to him? And if you haven't, I encourage you to ask someone, ask me or ask someone else how you can turn to faith in Christ. But all you really need to do is call out to him and say, God, I'm turning away from my sin. I'm believing and trusting in you. And I encourage you to do that. But a second way to connect is think about if we're believers, our role, our responsibility on believers. And so do we help others to connect to Christ? Do we help others to connect to Christ? When we look at someone, do we view Christ as that person's greatest need? Not, their, not that it's unimportant, but not primarily their safety, not whether there's a vaccine in the world, not their political position, but do we view Christ as their greatest need and Christ alone? There are unique opportunities to share in this season. Talking about this passage, this was Pastor Charles Spurgeon's application. He said, learn from this, dear brothers and sisters, every one of you, that wherever you are called to go, you should persevere in making known the name and gospel of Jesus. Look upon this as your calling and occupation. He looked at these believers and said, they went to this new city and they made Jesus's name known. But the third way to think about connection is amongst ourselves. Are we connected to our brothers and sisters in Christ? Because connection, we sometimes like to use the word fellowship, but connection is a word we use more in common society. Connection is essential to a Christian life. There are many commands in Scripture that imply that we are connecting with one another. Here's just two. Galatians 6.2 says we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfilled the law of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another. Build one another up, just as you are doing. You cannot do those things alone. If you sit in your house with your Netflix, you are not bearing one another's burdens. You are not encouraging one another. Not that there's anything wrong with doing that at a time. But these commands mean that we have to be connecting with others. And again, if you're watching us from home, I'm not telling you to go anywhere that makes you feel unsafe, but I am telling you, you cannot abandon your church family, both for their sake and for yours. We need to seek opportunities to connect. And we have tried to make that available in so many ways. Here in the church, you can come here. We also have the chapel available. You can watch us online. We do the same with many of our classes and groups. I know some Sunday school classes are bringing people in online to be with the rest of the class. On Wednesday nights, the women have a study that some people are in the chapel and some people are online. There's a men's study here at the church on Wednesday. There's also a men's group that meets online on Thursday evenings. We also have home fellowship groups. If you think being in a large building with uh, almost 80, 100, whatever people worries you, well, there are smaller groups that are often meeting outside, particularly while the weather is so nice and lovely. There are ways to connect. But as I'm saying this, I'm not just talking to the people who are watching us online. I'm also talking to those of us who are in this room. Have you taken the time to reach out, to connect with someone? Yes, as church leadership, those of us involved, we're, we're trying. We try to get in touch with many people as we can. But have each of us taken the responsibility to think, there's somebody I haven't talked to in a while. I wonder how they're doing. How can I encourage them during this season? 
And you're saying, well, Pastor John, that's someone who they don't want to come to church right now. They don't think it's safe. Okay, so maybe you can't get together in a way you used to, but maybe you can call them. Or if they're uncomfortable being at church, maybe you can take a walk with them or talk to them outside their house. I even had dinner a couple times with people. We sat on opposite ends of a picnic table. Because if if that's what you need to do to connect with somebody, then, then do that. Find some way to reach your brothers and sisters in Christ. Connect with others. That's what this church did. They went out and they gathered together and then they shared about Jesus in their new city. The second action step for this time is to grow, to grow spiritually, to grow spiritually. If the end of verse 23, remember Barnabas says he came and saw the grace of God. He was glad. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. It was something they had to commit to. They had to be intentional about knowing God and growing in their relationship with him. One of my favorite ways this is described is by the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians. In Philippians, it's actually 3, 12, and 14. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward, to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, brothers and sisters, pursuing spiritual growth is not an option. It is an essential part of our lives. Not that it determines our salvation, but if you're not growing, then you're backsliding. There is no middle ground. And spiritual growth does not just happen on its own. God works in us as we pursue Him. We pursue Him by reading His Word, spending time in prayer, memorizing His Word, serving, gathering with other believers, connecting where we can. God grows us through those spiritual disciplines. I know, I know that there is a pandemic going on, but life was never meant to be a pleasure cruise. We have always been an outpost in enemy territory. We've always been on the front lines of the battle. We have always been the only light in the darkness. It's just now we see that a bit clearer than we used to. Brothers and sisters, how will you grow? That's what Barnabas told these believers. Yes, you've gathered, lest you've shared, but you need to grow. Continue to remain faithful with steadfast purpose. How will you grow? Again, you can connect with us Here on Sundays, we have classes at church, classes available online. Maybe in just your own life, you need to make time for reading the Bible and spending time in prayer. It's something we have to be intentional about. And let me just say to those who are here in the church, I'm so grateful you're here. All of us, myself included, though, needs to be aware of the arrogance that thinks, well, I'm in church, so I'm already a step ahead of those other people. We don't get extra spiritual bonus points for that. Have the humility to view this as a time that you can grow as well. Things are going to be different. Yes, I said that. Remember, church is going to be different. So groups are going to be smaller. Classes, sermons aren't going to look like how they did before. But maybe with smaller classes, there's a chance for more intentional conversations. Maybe we can know each other better, know what problems and struggles we're going through. Maybe we can be more intentional about helping one another to grow in our faith. Yes, things are different. The church is scattered. But now what? Now is the time to connect and to grow. That's what the church in Antioch did. That is what God calls us 
to do now. His hand is with us in this because we are his children. He will act for his glory. He will act to draw people to him. He will act so that we can know him and that others can know Jesus. He will build his church so that he will be praised because he alone is worthy of that praise.